0: having. It's been exciting for us to talk as leaders about these uh, these meetings you guys, well, you ladies, excuse me, have been having. Um, yeah, just excited to hear of your eagerness and enthusiasm to study God's Word uh, and to discuss God's Word together and seek to apply it. Uh, so yeah, it's just, just a privilege to be here tonight, and I trust these classes have been really helpful and good for you. They've been good for me. I've been going to the men's classes on Tuesdays, and I think that's helped me to strengthen uh, both my comprehension of the gospel, but also just just my grip on it, um, just that I, I'm holding it tight, uh, holding a tight grip on the truths and doctrines of God's word, and a, a big reason uh, for that has been Alan, uh, and Alan, just his ability to easily articulate really deep the- theological concepts, in simple and understandable ways. I mean, hasn't doesn't he have a gift to do that? Uh, it's Such a gift that he's got and it's a blessing that we are able to benefit from that gift. And actually, you you may not know it, but you're gonna benefit from that gift tonight because Alan let me see his notes for this class and they were very helpful. Um, so even, Alan, if you're watching, you're even helping us to benefit tonight. Uh, all right, so we're gonna be looking at chapter 10. I'm sorry, this thing is popping feels like i keep popping on it. Uh, So we look at chapter 10 in what Alan has been calling Baby Grudem, uh, Christian Beliefs. And our topic tonight, like all the topics in this little book, it's posed to us in a simple, straightforward, four-word question. What is the atonement? If only the answer could be given in as many words. (laughs) Like all the chapters in this tiny book, there's way more that could be said to answer that question than... Uh, neither time nor my limited knowledge will allow. I mean, the atonement, it's it's the centerpiece of the entire gospel, the hinge on which all of redemptive history rests. Spurgeon said, atonement by the blood of Jesus is not an arm of Christian truth, it is the heart of it. Think about that. Wouldn't life be so much harder without one of your arms? I mean, if you know, playing piano or playing basketball or putting makeup on while driving. I mean, all those things would just be so much more difficult uh, with only one arm. But if your heart were to stop beating, two arms wouldn't do any good to you. You'd be dead. So to use Spurgeon's analogy, if we don't get the doctrine of the atonement right, all the other doctrines become essentially useless to us. So just like we need a healthy and functioning heart muscle able to pump life-sustaining oxygen throughout our arms and legs and fingers and toes and brains and organs, it's vitally important that we have a healthy and functioning doctrine of the atonement. Because when this doctrine is healthy, it becomes the life source for all the other doctrines that we believe and that we've been talking about, pumping life and strength and assurance into them. So the atonement is a massively important doctrine for us to understand, and and hopefully after spending a few minutes considering and then you guys discussing it together tonight, we'll have a slightly more informed or at least more freshly considered understanding of the doctrine of the atonement. But before we get into considering that doctrine specifically, let's remember doctrines are meant to not be merely understood, like in a solely intellectual kind of way. We've intended these classes this summer to not only deepen and sharpen doctrinal understanding of the men and women of Sovereign Grace. It's, been, it, it's not been simply to get us to know more stuff. No, we, we've wanted you to experience more life. We want the study of these doctrines to function well for you. As we teach them and as you consider them, we want you to feel them, to enjoy them, to have them affect your soul and change your thinking and reform your desires and compel you to worship. We want your theology, the study of God, to lead to doxology, which is the praise of God. We want the meditation and study of God's truths to have the same effect on you as it did the psalmist in Psalm 19. If you have your Bible on your phone or with you, I want you to go to Psalm 19. I just want you to hear the psalmist talk about the Word of God. This might be familiar to you, but let's just, just think about this. Together, psalm 19 verse 7 says this the law of the lord is perfect reviving the soul the testimony of the lord is sure making wise the simple the precepts of the lord are right rejoicing the heart the commandment of the lord is pure enlightening the eyes the fear of the lord is clean enduring forever The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. I just wonder, has that been your experience throughout the study of these doctrines? I sure hope so. I hope these Wednesday nights are bringing revival to your weary and waning soul. I hope they're helping to strengthen your discernment and increase your wisdom. I hope these doctrines are bringing joy and contentment to your heart. I hope they're giving you fresh insight into your life and identity and responsibilities as women of God, enlightening your eyes to see God's revealed will for your unique roles as women. It's been our hope and prayer as your leaders that the cumulative effect of these nights would be an increasing appetite for God's word. We want his word to be increasingly sweet and desirable to you more than any other earthly treasure and pleasure. And Hey, look, chances are good. I think that at least some of us here don't feel this way about God's word. Maybe your appetite for God's word has actually seemed to diminish over time rather than increase. And maybe that's because you haven't made room for reading and meditating on his word. Well, praise God that you're here again tonight. He's leading you to take steps in the right direction there's probably not a better place you could be here be than here in a community of other believers who want to grow in knowing and applying God's word to their lives. So, so if that's you tonight, just be encouraged. In whatever situation you may find yourself in tonight, God is aware of that situation, and he wants to lean down toward you and be near to you. So can I pray for us, and then we'll go ahead and get started into the atonement. Lord, we're grateful for the opportunity we have to consider your word tonight. Thank you for every woman gathered here, every daughter and sister and wife and mother and grandmother and friend. I pray Lord tonight that whether they find themselves eager or empty, worshipful or wanting, desirous or disinterested, would you give each of them a fresh appetite for an experience of your word revive weary souls. Lord, let your wisdom make us wise Help us to rejoice in your truths. Use your word to enlighten our eyes. Help us to taste its sweetness again tonight. And Lord, give us a greater desire to know it and a stronger commitment to obey it and keep it. And as we specifically consider the atonement tonight, Lord, we pray that your spirit would help us to both feel the weight and see the worth of what Jesus has accomplished for us through his obedient life and sacrificial death paying the penalty we deserved and securing forgiveness and eternal hope for us. So Lord, all that to say, Lord, we speak, we we ask you to speak to us, Lord, speak to us through your word, we pray, amen. Okay, so what is the atonement? R.W. Yarbrough says it this way, atonement may be defined as God's work on sinner's behalf to reconcile them to himself. It is the divine activity that confronts and resolves the problem of human sin so that people may enjoy full fellowship with God, both now and in the age to come. Uh, now on page 72 of our book right there at the beginning of the chapter, Grudem says the atonement, the atonement is simply the work Jesus did in His living and dying to earn our salvation. So a lot simpler sentence there. Uh, there are many ways we can approach the subject of the atonement, but Grudem chooses to break it down into four categories. And so we'll do that tonight. We'll, we'll go through the book that way. Uh, so he, he talks about the cause, the necessity, the nature, and the result of the atonement. So first, let's consider the question, what caused the atonement? What caused? So I'll, I'll probably ask some rhetorical questions throughout the way, uh, our way tonight. Um, Alan is really good at, at defending or, or uh, answering those questions. I'm not so good at that. But so if I ask a rhetorical question, you want to say something out loud, I might stare at you with like a deer in headlights. But um, another way to ask this question, what caused the atonement, is what caused Christ to leave his throne in heaven, come down to earth, take on human flesh, flesh, be perfectly and sacrificially obedient without a trace of sin for 33 grueling years, and then willingly take on the sins of everyone who ever lived dying a brutal death on a cross, bearing the infinite wrath of a holy God against those sins he himself did not commit in order to earn the salvation of a people who didn't want anything to do with him in the first place. So that's what we mean when we ask, what caused the atonement? Well, if we know anything from scripture about what motivates God to do anything and everything that God does, it's for the praise of his glory. Isaiah 43, verse six and seven says this, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who was called by my name, whom I created for my glory, who I formed and made. And Isaiah 42 says this, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. All throughout the Old Testament, God commanded his creation to worship and obey him as the only and infinitely glorious one. But as God foreknew, even before time began, man would reject him. And as Romans 1 tells us, man would exchange the glory of the immortal god for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things matt papa in his book look and live says it this way it's it's as if it's as if mankind has taken the diamond of god's glory to the pawn shop of the world and traded it for a penny a diamond for a picture of a diamond and this is the essence of sin it must be punished and man in himself is hopeless. But God devised a plan to send his son Jesus down to earth to earn salvation for us. And as Grudem points out in this chapter, he did this in order to showcase both his love and his justice. So we'll look at his love first. We don't have to look any further than the most famous verse in all the Bible to see that the love, to see the love motivated to see that love motivated God to send Jesus to save sinners. You guys know this verse, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. But what about all that glory that people were stealing from God and giving to other things? Did God just choose to ignore that once he got to the New Testament, like a good cop, bad cop kind of thing? the Old Testament, is this grumpy, full of rage, old guy, but by the time the New Testament gets here, he's turned into a jolly, gift-giving, cosmic Santa Claus. Well, that's not what Paul tells us in Romans 3, which is in the New Testament, by the way. And that's the other thing that God wanted to show is his justice. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through, this is how, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God himself put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Why? Paul's glad you asked. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, which was another term for Old Testament mercy, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Alan shared this helpful testimony, uh, not testimony, sorry, analogy in the men's class a few weeks ago about this, Uh, so I'll, I'll try to do it justice. But he said, imagine a judge presiding over a murder trial. A man killed another man in cold blood and by his own admission is without doubt guilty. So what if the judge, how would you feel if the judge were to choose to let this murderer go free without having to serve any sentence at all? On one hand, the judge would seem to be a very loving, gracious, merciful judge. But if we consider the judge character from the perspective of the wife whose husband was killed, while this judge may seem gracious or may even be gracious toward the murderer, he cannot be called just. He's allowed a crime to go unpunished. Someone needs to pay. But then what if the judge stepped down from his bench, asked the guard to remove the handcuffs from the murderer and place them around his own wrists instead, therefore taking upon himself the guilty man's punishment? Then love and justice would both be displayed by the judge. So while that analogy isn't perfect, I think it does illustrate the beauty of the atoning work of Christ in the gospel. God's justice compels him to make sure the penalty of sin is fully paid. And God's love compels him, God's love compels him to send his son to make certain that that happens, that that justice happens. And that leads us to our next question. Why was the atonement necessary? Was there any other way for God to save human beings than by sending his own son to die in their place? Remember all of mankind has sinned and sinning against an eternal God ensures an eternal consequence God could have chosen in his justice to condemn all of mankind to an eternal punishment in hell. And he would have been perfectly just to do that. Remember the murderer on trial. The judge had every right to sentence him to death row. He murdered a man. He deserved punishment, just like we do. We who have sinned against God, we deserve punishment for our sin. And in this sense, God's justice makes the punishment for sin absolutely necessary. Does that make sense? 2 Peter 2.4, it tells us that God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but they cast him into hell and committed them to pits of nether gloom to be kept until the judgment. Sounds like a bad level in Minecraft. (laughs) That could have been the fate of the entire human race. But God in his love and mercy towards sinful man, he determined to save some. And once he decided to put this plan into motion to save some, Scripture then seems to indicate that there was no other way for God to save man than through the death of his son. And we see this in the Garden of Gethsemane. It seemed like Jesus would have been willing to take a rain check on being crucified if there had been any other way. Matthew 26, it says this, And going a little farther, he fell on his face, talking about Jesus, prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So it seems like if there was a possibility, like Jesus would have said, yeah, let's do that instead. Or consider Jesus' rhetorical question to the disciples on the road to Emmaus when they couldn't seem to believe that he had, in fact, risen from the dead. This is in Luke chapter 24. Uh, Jesus said to them, Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? So Jesus isn't really asking them. He's kind of telling them it was necessary. And then Hebrews just comes right out and tells us plainly in Hebrews chapter 2. It says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And then later in Hebrews 9, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin, and this is How? By the sacrifice of himself. So, in this sense, the atonement was necessary. If God's intention was to save sinners, the only way it could be done was through the death of his son, of his son Jesus. And that leads us to the next question, which is what is the nature of the atonement? So, for this, we're going to read a little bit of our chapter, page 73, if you have your book. If not, I'll just read it out loud to us. Uh, This is going to be right under the nature of the atonement, that first uh, full paragraph. If Christ had only offered himself as a sacrifice, thereby earning us forgiveness of sins, we would only have access to a partial salvation. Although our guilt would be removed, we would be like Adam and Eve when they were first created, guilt-free, but capable of sin. Ever thought about that? I never thought about that, that if if the Lord uh, had had chosen just to to wipe our slate clean, then we would just be like Adam and Eve was with the possibility to sin. But let's let's keep reading. Uh, Having no lifelong record of obedience. And in order to enter into fellowship with God, we would need to live a life of perfect obedience. Therefore, Christ had to live a life of perfect obedience to God so that the positive merits of that obedience could be counted for us. This is something that should cause us to rejoice. We could never be perfectly obedient. I can't go a few minutes without a sinful attitude or misplaced hope or prideful thought. Even if Christ's death could give me a brand new, perfectly clean obedience slate right now, by the time I got to my car to go home tonight, I would have had it all scuffed up and dirty. It wasn't just Jesus's sinlessness that we needed. If that were the case, he could have died in our place the moment he stepped down from heaven. The obedience that God requires is a lifelong obedience, and Jesus gave us that. Romans five nineteen it says, "For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous." This is why we need the doctrine of the, to- of the atonement; it gives us hope. So you know, when, when some of you young girls are, are jealous because your friends don't seem to like you as much as they like that other girl. <laughs> So you say things to try to hurt them or make yourself look better than them. Or when you mom, excuse me, my mouth. Or when you moms are feeling like a failure in your homes because you can't seem to get control of your feelings or your floors or your figure or the other members of your family. So you just eat another bowl of ice cream or binge watch another TV show or depressingly scroll through another few hundred photos on Instagram of everyone else's perfect life. Or when your husband is apathetic or angry or unappreciative, or when your boss is demanding or domineering, when your extended family is unsympathetic or unloving or unavailable, when you just want to cut corners and give yourself permission to cheat, when you want to explode or, or make excuses or be excessive, when all you can seem to do is add one more sinful stain, be encouraged. Look to Jesus. He was perfectly obedient to the Father. He never gave in to any temptation. He was never disloyal, never impatient, never unkind or proud or dishonest or selfish. And he was all of these things for you and me so that when we couldn't perfectly obey the Father, it wouldn't be counted against us. Instead, and incredibly, the Father would count Jesus's obedient life as our own life. That's why we sing Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left the crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Jesus wasn't only obedient for us. He also suffered for us. We can tend to think pretty narrowly of the ways Christ suffered. I can, at least, thinking that it mostly happened right near the end of his life during that week of the crucifixion. Uh, But Grudem reminds us, at least in Big Grudem, that Jesus suffered throughout his entire life. Here's a quote from, from Big Grudem. Though Christ's sufferings culminated in his death on the cross, his whole life in a fallen world involved suffering. Think about this. I, I never thought about this before. For example, Jesus endured tremendous suffering during the temptation in the wilderness when he was assaulted for 40 days by the attacks of Satan. He also suffered in growing to maturity. Hebrews 5.8 says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. He knew suffering in the intense opposition he faced from Jewish leaders throughout much of his earthly ministry. We may suppose, too, that he, had, he experienced suffering and grief at the death of his earthly father, and certainly he experienced grief at the death of his close friend Lazarus. In predicting the coming of the Messiah, Isaiah the prophet said that he would be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. But certainly the suffering he endured on our behalf did in fact culminate in his death on the cross. It was there that he experienced the most intense physical and spiritual and emotional suffering ever experienced by any human who ever lived, and not just because he was crucified. He did suffer physically by dying an excruciating death on the cross. But he suffered spiritually by bearing the weight of sin that wasn't his, and that was totally against his divine nature. Think about that this perfect man having to bear all this ugly sin that he had been so utterly opposed to. And then he, he suffered emotionally by being totally abandoned by his followers, by his father, until he had to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He suffered emotionally. But, but the most difficult suffering Jesus endured was when he willfully became the object of God's eternal wrath towards sin, which the father had been storing up for all eternity suddenly and fully unleashed upon and absorbed by the perfectly obedient Messiah, the Lamb of God, who had come to take away the sins of the world. It's excruciating pain, suffering that Jesus did for us, so that we wouldn't have to. And this leads us to our final question. What is the result of the atonement? One last quote from Big Rudom. Jesus was able to bear all the wrath of God against our sin and to bear it to the end. No mere man could ever have done this, but by virtue of the union of divine and human natures in himself, Jesus was able to bear all the wrath of God against sin and bear it to the end. Isaiah predicted that God shall see the fruit of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. When Jesus knew that he had paid the full penalty of our sin, he said, it is finished. If Christ had not paid the full penalty, there would still be condemnation left for us. But since he has paid the full penalty that is due us, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. To say it simply, the result of the atonement is that we are justified. Keith and Kristen Getty captured the atonement beautifully in their song, The Power of the Cross. And if you don't mind, I'd like for us to sing that song together uh, to close. I, I put the lyrics out on your table. Um, So yeah, why don't we go ahead and stand together and we'll sing that. Because remember what we said at the beginning, the the point of theology is doxology. So we want the truths of God to inform the emotions that we feel about those truths. And we want them to overflow in the praise. And so Let's, let's take some time to worship the Lord as we sing these truths together. Oh, to see the dawn. Oh, to see the dawn Of the darkest day christ on the road to calvary tried by sinful men torn and beaten then nailed to a cross of wood this the power the cross christ became sin for us took the blame for the wrath we stand forgiven at the cross verse two, Oh, to see the pain oh to see the pain written on your face bearing the awesome weight of sin every bitter thought every evil deed crowning your blood-stained brow. This is the power. This is the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us, took the blame, at the cross let's think about his crucifixion now the daylight flees now the ground beneath quakes as its maker bows his head curtain torn in two dead are raised to life finish the victory cry this the power of the cross Christ became took the blame for the wrath we stand forgiven at the cross let's think about eternity oh to see my name oh to see my name written in the womb through your suffering I am free death is crushed to death life is mine to live one through your selfless love this the path Son of God, Son of God, slain, slain for us. What a love, what a love, what a cost, we stand forgiven at the cross, what a love, what a love, what a cost we stand forgiven at the cross thank you Jesus thank you for atoning for our sin thank you for taking our place thank you for being our substitute and thank you for forgiveness thank you for redemption thank you for covering us with your blood Thank you for your obedience, Lord, that we get to be counted as righteous. Lord, we're grateful people. Lord, so now we pray, God, that as spend some time discussing this truth and applying it. Lord, would you would you be near? Would you minister through these ladies to one another? Spirit of God, would you be here and Would you you let your word be something that is called to mind by some of these ladies that are just the right word for the right moment? Lord, would you be glorified, we pray in your name, amen, amen.